Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're merging CONCACAF and CONDOBOL. We're analysing Vlatko's potential successors and we're going cuckoo for Premier League fullbacks because of course we are. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, your friend, my friend, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello, my friend, my friend, Ryan Bailey. I'm excited to be here. I'm very excited to, uh, I always like, we record these on a Thursday, Taylor, mm-hmm. and I always like to just get my little hand, dip it into the mailbag, get the questions out. It's a, it's a good process. I enjoy this episode. Do you? I, I do, especially when there are certain questions in there that I was like, oh, that's an easy one. And then the more you think about it, the more it creates existential dread. Always fun with listener questions. Always fun. Oh, boy. Uh, listener, try and spot which question Taylor's talking about when we get to it. Oh, <laughs> uh, 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 it's less existential dread and more so like, oh, that could be really bad about a thing that I thought could be really good. Uh, I'm, I'm foreshadowing. We'll talk about it soon. Yeah, don't worry. It's not the Flatco question. Joe Lowry joining us also. That's the one that fills me with existential dread. <laughs> Taylor doesn't get that from that one. But that's going to be all me and we're going to get it right from the top. Ryan, it's good to see you. You too, pal. Graham Ruffin, how are you, sir? <laughs> I am very well, Ryan Bailey. How are you? Are you still a bit tired from staying up to watch the US Open Cup last night? Because I know, obviously, you're a big US Open Cup guy. That's your thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the I've, uh, the fever I had yesterday, the US Open Cup fever has now subsided. So I'm feeling a lot better, but thank you for asking. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, the prince that was promised is uh, in the final, isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. Almost like it was uh, <laughs> scripted that way. I, I actually did stay up to watch that game and then realised, oh, US Open Cup is not on British TV, is not part of the Apple TV package and couldn't kind of tolerate the stream the dodgy stream that i would inevitably have to find so i just woke up and saw the result and messi won for a change he doesn't do much of that in his career good for him only an assist as well right well pro- two assists. I, I call it- oh so two okay well off form all the way um <laughs> joe, joe and taylor how does one watch us open cup on us broadcast excuse my ignorance uh, uh cbs or do you? i don't know i don't know how you watch it other places in other countries i know there is now because of messi in miami a global rights deal for U.S. Open Cup. More on Messi and Miami on the big thing on tomorrow's episode. That was part of my research, and Taylor is nodding oh. like it was part of his as well. Well, just I didn't know uh, until last night slash today. I forget when I first read this that there's going to be a star cam, so you can just watch Lionel Messi play. That that's uh, that's what we're doing over here. I believe I believe the Athletic had Jeff Reuter watching the star cam, <laughs> so he just watched Messi for 120 minutes. Star cam. Um, Jeff, Godspeed, sir. Uh, I hope hope you're recovering well. That star star cam sounds like they're going to project it up into this into the sky they like are. joe you said the u.s open cup now has a global rights deal they're now just going to project it onto the moon so the entire world <laughs> yeah. can watch it all at the same you know, time you know how like we send out like like radio frequencies and like mathematic <laughs> equations out into the galaxy yeah. just in case there's intelligent life we're now just broadcasting uh single cam shots of messi around this uh, around the pitch That's just amazing. in case uh, aliens are also playing football <laughs> i know we have <laughs> listener questions to get to and this is a slight change of subject oh boy still on messi in miami we joked for like months leading up to Messi announcing that he wanted to go to Miami. Like, oh, Messi's got to do it in the U.S. Open Cup. He actually played in the U.S. Open Cup last (laughs) night. I'm not sure. I watched that whole game. I'm not sure that actually sunk in for me until right now. I don't understand the timeline that we're living in. I'm not mad at it, to be clear, but I, I do not understand it. 
I'm looking forward to Starcam now. There's a Starcam watching Messi walk for up to 70 minutes and so on and so forth. Very good. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show if you want our bonus content, by the way. Bonus episodes there. We've got videos. Uh, we've got, what else? Um, candy, fireworks, puppies. It's all there. We promise. It's all there. If you go uh, a Discord as well, an excellent community there. We have a lot of fun chatting with uh, you guys on the Discord. Thank you for your support if you are on there, by the way. And also, listen to questions, of course. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions another url being fired at you if you want to leave us a question we very much appreciate that shreyas romani hey shreyas uh Shreis has been in touch with a question could you talk a bit about the pros and cons of a uh, potential vlatko successors specifically for the more gettable candidates like laura harvey or casey stoney uh, as opposed to the dream candidates like emma hayes or sarita Beegman. hands off hands off um taylor what are we thinking about the, the field at the moment uh looking at the um the betting emporiums laura harvey the favorite from uh um uh, ol rain uh there's a few others serena Rigman is third favorite um worryingly for me yeah i wouldn't worry so much my friend uh <laughs> for a couple different reasons there i also would sort of quibble with Treyas's categorization of those two as the dream candidates. I think one of the uh, the former two he listed is a dream candidate, at least in my opinion, having done some research for this one. Uh, but I, I think that person would be Casey Stoney. I'm, I'm all aboard the Casey Stoney hype train. I would like her to be uh, the USWNT, the next USWNT manager. We can talk more about uh, why in detail, but we will. I think the we gist will be is talking that I, about that. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, okay. It's not just going to be me and then we're going to move on. Cool, 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 cool. Um, I, I, I my kind of background to this one is that I think U.S. soccer is likely to go with a domestic hire, quote unquote, as in someone from the NWSL. Uh, I think looking abroad right now would be recognizing a vulnerability in U.S. soccer that I'm not sure they are inclined to recognize. I, I still get the impression that U.S. soccer coming out of this World Cup is sort of like, oh, it was just unfortunate bounces and it could have gone differently. And maybe we just got to change some things. And I think that's why we're seeing so many players starting to talk publicly about how bad the experience was, about how frustrating it was. I still think we'll see somebody from NWSL more likely than we will somebody yeah. from other national teams. It's going to be Laura Harvey, isn't it? I mean, am I jumping the gun a little bit there? There was a time when I thought Jesse Marsh was nailed on to be the USMNT manager, so I've got a good track record there. But Laura Harvey just seems to be at the top of most shortlists as things stand. Obviously, at the moment, it's still very early. Matt Crocker, um, not long in the job as technical, technical director. General manager Kate Margraff has, has, has left US soccer now, so it does feel like that we're looking at a bit of a clean slate. But when you look at Laura Harvey, her standing in US soccer as maybe the highest profile NWSL head coach at the moment, so that kind of fits the bill with what you were saying there, Taylor. And then also the fact that She's worked with a number of mm. the players already between, obviously, Oil Rain having, having you know, Rose Lavelle and, and uh, Sofia Huerta and a number of current national team players. And then also the fact that she was U20 head yeah. coach. And if you're looking at someone who wants to, someone whose task is to bring through the next generation or at least turn the next generation into world beaters. And she's worked with players like Trinity Rodman and Naomi Gurma and, and, and uh, Sophia Smith. So when I, when I sat down to do my research, the consensus, the takeaway for me was that I think it's going to be Laura Harvey and I think it'll be her and then quite a big gap and then the other candidates below her. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying I think that's how US soccer will see it. I I disagree. I don't know for sure, but I think Matt Crocker coming in as sporting director after Ernie Stewart leaves, he comes in after the World Cup and goes through the hiring process for the US men's national team coach, eventually lands on Greg Berhalter, which does not... 
as an outsider, make it feel like there was a ton of really thorough vetting of options all around the world. U.S. Soccer says that there is, and, and I don't have a real reason to disagree with them. On the women's side, though, and I bring up Berhalter on the men's side, to transition to the women's side, if I'm Matt Crocker, I want to make a hire that shows like I am, I am making this my hire. I'm not going out there and recycling the same name. So I think there is a real chance that U.S. Soccer does end up going outside of the NWSL. I don't know that it's the most likely thing, especially because the options are so few and far between. It seems to me, anyway, that the high-quality options feel really, really scarce right now. You've got Laura Harvey in the NWSL, a coach that, frankly, I've not been terribly impressed with tactically. The same goes with Casey Stoney, but I do want to hear Taylor's thoughts on that in just a second. But then you think about Emma Hayes, who's had a lot of success with Chelsea. She also has a lot of talent at her disposal as well and probably has a talent advantage compared to every other team in the Premier League. So she's won a lot. But, you know, that's probably right around where the bar is. And then Serena Wiegmann would probably be my favorite of the four coaches that Shreyas mentions in his question, but feels unlikely that that's going to happen. So anyway, I am I'm much more optimistic that U.S. soccer will reach outside of the NWSL than you guys are. And I am I don't think I would nearly go as far as Graham did with saying Laura Harvey's most likely to get this job. I think there's still a lot that's up in the air. I think we'll see. You know, I, I would be surprised if we don't see a higher you know, by the end of the year, maybe December, maybe a little bit earlier than that. I don't know exactly what the time frame is going to look like heading into the Olympics, which is less than a year away now. I think we'll we'll have this interim manager for a while, but I, I think U.S. soccer will be open. Almost certainly Crocker would be and probably should be open to going out and looking at a name that hasn't been involved in U.S. soccer before. Also, Shreyas, I recognize that we have not answered your question at all, hmm. <laughs> and hopefully we can come back around and do that after I hear from Taylor. It, it's a, I mean, it could be a show unto itself, I think, this question. So I think hopefully Shreyas will forgive us for jumping around a little bit. Joe, I, I was taking genuinely taking furious notes as you were talking, so I just wanted to be clear. Did you mention Kate Margraff in there? Because I think that's I not. the other thing. I'm, I, I'm, I think we don't have a ton of clarity on if it's Kate Margraff leading the search and Matt Crocker. No, no, no Margraff's sort gone. Of, Margraff well, she's gone. gone. She's yep. Oh, she is gone. Okay, yep. then I missed that. It's Matt Crocker. This is Crocker's job. Cool. All right, sweet. Wanted to clarify that. The second thing then, I think it's a really interesting way of seeing it as to like, is this Matt Crocker leading U.S. soccer as the general manager? Is he sort of the one who's like, this is my vision. This is how I want it to be. Or is he more of a consensus builder and taker? And I don't really mean that in a negative way. I just think we've seen that be what the GM has been. of Sort of like, okay, what do we all kind of agree? What do we all want to do? I don't really feel like we had Ernie Stewart's vision for the program necessarily, nor Brian McBride's on the men's side. So I think right away, that will be really interesting. Is it Matt Crocker's sort of like steering the program the way he thinks it needs to be steered or is it sort of Matt Crocker letting the crew do the steering and he is sort of there to take the opinion uh so that that will be I think really interesting I think we'll, we won't really know that until we see who is hired because I don't think we'll get a ton of transparency about the process um but that's one thing I hadn't really considered I think where I came from was more of a I think U.S. soccer tends to go with we, we're looking at some names. We have a few people that we're interested in. But unless there is that one like ideal candidate that the U.S. soccer president, uh, like in, if past was precedent, was sort of into, a.k.a. Jurgen Klinsmann, they'll go for that person. But if there's not that one sort of person that uh, like the leading figure agrees is the right one, then I think we're going to get more consensus building, workshopping, focus grouping, that sort of approach. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's where NWSL is more likely to appeal. 
what do we think about Tony Gustafsson as a as a candidate? Because we've mentioned kind of inside and outside candidates. Joe, you you say like Crocker might be more inclined to go outside U.S. soccer. He's he's kind of a like a halfway house option, and that obviously his background is with U.S. soccer, assistant to Jill Ellis. At that time, after Jill Ellis leaves, it feels like U.S. soccer wants a clean break from that era. He doesn't get the head coach job. He goes and takes the Australia job, and and at the World Cup does does a a good job of leaving, leading them to the semi-finals. Now, tactically and stylistically, I'm not sure how good a fit that is for the US, given Australia did play largely a counter-attacking style, strong at the back, quite physical in, in, in their approach. So I don't know if that's what people would want the US MNT to be. I mean, Australia didn't really use the ball to control games at, at, at the World right. Cup. But then that then leads to an, ex, uh, an existential question, a, f- a philosophical question. If the US, if one of our takeaways from this World Cup is the US doesn't have a vast talent advantage over the other teams like they used to, should they be a bit more pragmatic in their approach? Yeah. Would someone like Gustafsson be an unsexy appointment, but would he actually be a sensible appointment in terms of winning games in a tournament format? I think yes to the first question, and it's possible to the second question. I, I, I wouldn't be mad at this hire. One of the things uh, in terms of pros and cons that I went through looking at the list of coaches that Shreyas tossed out is international experience, right? Vlako Andonovsky gets the U.S. job, has never coached at the international level, right? He was an NWSL manager. One of the downsides, I think, with Casey Stoney, and Taylor, I do want to hear your why you're hyped about her, is that she's never coached at the international level, right? She's coached True. Manchester United, and she's coached San Diego Wave. I don't really know how much that should factor in, but it feels like some sort of an advantage that some candidates would have over others, and Tony Gustafsson would certainly be in that latter category, Obviously, as someone who's coached at World Cups before, he has some familiarity, Graham, as you said, with the U.S. system. And there was an observable approach with Australia, which is a low bar uh, tactically, but is higher (laughs) than where the U.S.'s bar was at this World Cup. So I'm not necessarily all in on Gustafsson, but I'm not I'm not necessarily opposed either. Two other names quickly that weren't in the list that Shreya sent in. Futoshi Ikeda. Japan, (laughs) I mentioned his name a bunch. The more I thought about it, (laughs) the, (laughs) the more I think like this would be almost impossible with the communication barrier. And maybe he speaks English. I don't know. But that feels really, really challenging. Communicating all of your tactical ideas in Japanese to your players who can understand you perfectly. Like, it's hard to fully account for how difficult that could be as a coach, trying to communicate in a different language that's not native to you at all uh, and, and is not maybe one that you even know, although I don't know. And then another one, Francisco Neto, who coached Portugal at the World Cup. I, I was impressed by Portugal. I think a lot of folks were given their talent level and how they played. Uh, but Gustafsson is is a good shout as well. Joe, is this a is this a desirable job at this point? We're talking about some um, coaches who have decent jobs elsewhere. Sure. How do you view this going into it? Is it a is it lots of upside in terms of the only ways up in many ways for this team? Obviously, it's a program with a lot of financial clout behind it and, and, and heritage behind it. Or is it? Or are some coaches going to look at this like, ooh, why would I leave what I have for what could be a bit of a mess? I, th- I think there are few coaches that would say you to the U.S. job. I'm not saying there aren't any, and Serena Wiegmann's doing a, a polite That's job of saying response, that publicly. By the way. <laughs> uh, we've released a statement. It says, ew, no, get away. Uh, no, I mean, like, there, Serena Wiegmann might be the only one. Maybe there's a couple of other coaches, but of the current folks who are involved in women's soccer, I, I think almost all of them would view the U.S. women's national team job, especially, and Graham, you pointed this out, after the World Cup failure, especially after this team is at a low, right? Like this is your chance to bring them back to the top or or at least to do better than they did when the bar is lower than it's been for a long time for, for the U.S. women's national team. So 
yeah, I, I think this is still a very, very desirable job and maybe even a more desirable one because of the round of 16 exit at the World Cup. Yeah, I think there's only a handful of, of managers who wouldn't at least entertain the idea of taking over the US at this time. Unfortunately, I think two of them are probably in Shreyas' question, Emma Hayes and Serena Vigman. Serena Vigman, because she's under contract till 2025. I have a feeling she will want another shot at a World Cup with England, even going as long as 2027. I believe there's a two-year extension option for her. At this point, I can see her uh, activating that clause in her contract. And then Emma Hayes, who I'm not surprised gets mentioned as, as an option for the, for the US and a future US head coach. But when I look at her career path, I think there's a pretty obvious career path you can plot forward for Emma Hayes. She England wants she wants to win the... Um, she wants to win... What's that, Joe? I said England after Vigman, right? There we go. You skip, you skipped ahead. Yes, <laughs> that yeah. was that was where we, I was getting to. We Basically, saw that she wants, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she wants a couple of, uh, more shots at the the women's Champions League with Chelsea getting close in the last few seasons. That feels like a, a, a kind of final frontier for some of the English clubs like Chelsea. And then after that, I think she is pretty much nailed on to the, to succeed Serena Vigman whenever she leaves. So yeah, those are probably the only two that I think maybe wouldn't be interested in it. And I just want to be like clear. I don't think this is just our bias. We're obviously an American podcast. I just think the US women's job in the women's game it's just so well funded, and there have been obviously public disputes yeah. between the players and the federation. It might be the, the biggest federation. job in women's football yeah. and, man- and, and, uh, yeah. and managerial women's the, football. You the biggest job? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, true. I also genuinely think it's one of the most stable. Like, I, I think so many teams at this World Cup, like Spain win the World Cup. Yes. Do they have a ton of funding? No. And, like, I feel like the narrative has been they want it in, like, despite their federation, not because of their federation. And U.S. soccer, we hear about it consistently. There are issues, but there's also never been an issue when it comes to, like, when the payments actually arrive, when it comes to funding of travel, when it comes to funding of training and training facilities. I, I guess that goes back to, like, when the U.S. women had to train on turf. I feel like that was 2015 or thereabouts. Like, I just still think the issues that you would get uh, managing a women's team for the U.S. women it are so much more basically first world problems than you're going to get with other teams uh, and other national teams and even other club teams that I think it's it's that alone makes it such an appealing gig. And then on top of that, for it to be this juggernaut program that is now in a, a down period, sort of like you can be the one who come, comes in and rectifies that and restores them to their World Cup winning glory. I think there's a ton of reason why this would appeal to most people. Except for the two that have already been mentioned for the yeah. reasons mentioned. I totally agree with that. Taylor, can you give us your case for Casey Stoney? Sure. Uh, so I'll start with uh, when she takes over the San Diego Wave as uh, their head coach. She describes herself as a no BS manager. I watched her coach's voice video uh, from when she was coaching Manchester United women's team, uh, talking about their first win over a top three side in the WSL after they're promoted when they beat Arsenal 1-0. That video fully backs up her claims. Uh, she is very pragmatic. She is very smart. She is very straightforward in her explanations in that way that like you can tell she is very effective at communicating what she wants from players about like, oh yeah, she's got to go there and then that opens up this and then that's how that happens. But we got to do this this way. It's all just very clear and concise, much more so than I'm even giving it credit for. But the way I think she was able to talk about nullifying all of Arsenal's strengths and how they want to play but basically using Manchester United strengths to capitalize on Arsenal's vulnerabilities, the way she had her team set up, but then adapt and adjust in game. I feel like those are things that we've talked about time and time again as being areas of deficiency with the U.S. women's program. And I also think 
from what I've heard from her and heard about her that Casey Stoney doesn't really suffer fools and isn't really going to like deal with people who are saying like, I I don't want to do that. That doesn't fit my style. I think she is going to play her style and bring in people and utilize people who will, uh, basically do what she needs them to do. Also looking at what she's done with San Diego for a moment. She took an expansion team, made them into a contender. They lose in the semifinals uh, of the playoffs last year, but she was getting career best numbers out of Alex Morgan, who then looks wildly ineffective for the U S this summer. Uh, She was able to get solid performances out of many different rookies. It's a team that has talent in it, certainly, but it's not when you look at that squad as though San Diego has, you know, seven guaranteed starters to the women's national team or anything like that. She, built a very good team and got them all playing very good football Uh, i believe she's also the longest tenured coach in nwsl which says something more about the league than it does necessarily her Uh, she took over in july of 2021 laura harvey rejoined ol rain in august of 2021 so those would be your two longest tenured coaches that is that Uh, is crazy and not that's also not great for the nwsl it's really not it's really not but i think she has nwsl experience joe you're totally right that she does not have international like team uh, experience. She has obviously international experience ma- managing Manchester United. Uh, I like. I, I, I think she was also a player coach when she yeah. was like 28, which is kind of fascinating to me. But I, I just I, I felt like the way I was really struck by the way she was able to clearly convey her tactics and what she wanted and how she was able to get her players to do that and and the little adjustments in game. I think all of that just made me feel like she is a coach who will get the best out of a program, not really tolerate fools and not be overawed by the appointment. Plus great drip. Plus great drip. Also drip. Also drip. (laughs) Shreyas, thank you very much for submitting that question. We hope you enjoyed us tangentially answering it. We will take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk Premier League fullbacks. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, 
grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to Matt Adler's question who says he feels like the tactical theme of the early Premier League season is fullbacks inverting into midfield, but he feels like everyone's doing something slightly different. How are City, Tottenham, Arsenal and Liverpool's fullback tactics different or are they more similar than we realise? I suppose, Graham, the one that stood out for me, maybe I don't know why, but Thomas Partey doing the right back thing, yeah. inverting at Arsenal, that's the one that... I feel like has headlined it a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so Mikel Arteta Arsenal is doing some funny things, interesting things with fullbacks over the last two years. And not that I'm bitter about it at all because it has essentially pushed Kieran Tierney completely out of that <laughs> club, despite being one of their best players. Before that, I read today that he's training on his own, not even with uh, the Arsenal first team. So that, not even I'm really pleased about bag, that. Graham? Man, that's so sad. <laughs> it's a sad sight, Joe. It's it a is. sad sight. But yeah, Arsenal are certainly doing some interesting things. And and, and I will. Um, I feel like Joe is literally rubbing his hands at this question, so I will pass. <laughs> The, the mic soon but I, I think there are some similarities between how City and Arsenal get their fullbacks into central midfield and that whether it's John Stones or, or Ben White or Thomas Partey the idea is to then free up space for someone in the midfield to get into advanced roles and create overloads um, and then if we're looking at Liverpool Alexander-Arnold is in those positions but his individual brief is a little bit different in that he's in that midfield unit to create whereas I don't think Stones and, and, and Ben White or Thomas Partey are in that midfield to create Spurs are probably the one that I've got the best read on just because you know Ange Postacoglu and my love affair with him um, but obviously it's early days for him as, as manager at Spurs but it feels like he wants to do more to get his um, fullbacks into the middle to receive the ball from the goalkeeper and then got on the half turn. I think that is a, a, a slight nuance there. So those players need to be very press resistant. I'm not convinced Emerson Royale in, in particular is. There were some rough moments in that game against Manchester United last weekend. So that is something that Spurs will need to work on. Um, I also think Postecoglou was more willing to let his fullbacks actually drive into the final third through the middle. So Zinchenko does this at times for Arsenal. He's been out injured for a while, so we haven't seen him for, for quite some time. Um, but when he plays, he he does that. And we used to see Yalcancelo do that for City as well. So other teams do it too. But the freedom that Royale and, and um, Adoji get to drive to the edge of the D in the opposition penalty era, that feels extreme when comparing Spurs to um, to other teams. But maybe Joe has uh, deeper thoughts on this. No, Graham, I, I think you said the scene really, really well. There are a lot of similarities in what these teams do and, and why they're doing things. There are also some micro differences. And Graham, you walked through some of that stuff already. I, I think I love this question from Matt because I, I think this has been a theme across the, the top soccer leagues for the last couple of years now, but we are really seeing it with Tottenham fully gumming on board with Ange Postacoglu pushing his fullbacks inside. We're seeing more and more of this to the point where, you know, for a while, the, the definition of a modern fullback was what? It was Jordi Alba and Danny Alves bombing up the sidelines, right? That was what was in style for the best fullbacks in the world. Modern fullbacks don't do that anymore. Like the best teams in the world aren't, aren't sending both of their fullbacks flying forwards down the wings. They're now relying on their, their fullbacks to do one of two things, with, with maybe a couple of exceptions, but either to provide defensive help, usually by pinching them into central areas, or to provide playmaking from deep, which is what we see a lot from Trent Alexander-Arnold, although he's kind of in a category in, on his own in this whole fullback discussion because he is unique as a player. 
or teams just aren't even using fullbacks. And Manchester City kind of have championed this and championed this last year, heading into their Champions League win and, and their, their all their trophies really last year. Now we're seeing this with Thomas Partey, Ryan, the one you let us in with, who is a defensive midfielder, but he's playing as a right back, pinching inside, defending as a, as a fullback and tucking inside in, in, into midfield as uh, Arsenal are in possession. So I want to quickly run through what each team is doing with their fullbacks at like a bird's eye level, and then I'll cede the mic to Taylor if he has anything to add. So Tottenham, with Pedro Porro and either Emerson on, on one side and then Udogi on the other side. Graham, you said it with Celtic last year. Postacoglu pushes his fullbacks inside next to the number six. That's exactly what Tottenham do now. So they kind of start in a either base 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, and then they push their two fullbacks inside. They push their other midfielders forward, and they end up in this 2-3-5 shape that we've talked about a little bit this year. Maybe we'll see some changes, especially because I'm not sure Pedro Porro is a great fit for that role. He's not an Ange signing. Uh, I think that might be tweaked as the year goes on, but but Tottenham ran that 2-3-5 with the fullbacks and the six forming that line of three in possession. Manchester City, last year, like at times, didn't even play with fullbacks, and this year, because John Stones has been hurt, they've done some different stuff. But Rico Lewis has pinched in from left back into midfield, and Kyle Walker will either pinch in or he'll go high, right? And so he'll do one of those two things depending on the moment. And then we saw Gvardiol play left back in the second game uh, against Newcastle, and he starts wider and then forms a back three in possession for them in a 3-2-5 shape. Again, there's a lot of similarities here. Arsenal, they've kept Partey back and either, uh, excuse me, they pushed him into midfield and either kept Timber or Tomiyasu uh, home as a left back. Timber now out with a long-term knee injury and Tomiyasu suspended for their next game. So maybe we'll see something different from them. But that's just flipped. Tierney's still not getting a game. Tierney's still not getting a game, Graham, RIP. Uh, at least you got Billy Gilmore, I guess we can we can say that. I it's, don't think he's getting a game for Arsenal either. Doesn't seem that way, now does it? That's, that's a really solid point. It's flipped for Arsenal from what it was last year. It was Zinchenko inverting on the left and Ben White staying home on the right side. And so Arteta's just kind of flipped it around and it, it's been working fairly well so far. Liverpool will get to kind of a 3-2-5 structure as well. They keep Robertson back on the left side and push Alexander-Arnold into midfield in kind of early possession phases. And then as they move high up the field, Alexander-Arnold just kind of goes wherever he wants, especially on that right side. He'll go wide, he'll go central, he'll go in the half space, he'll push up, he'll stay deep. He has almost a free role for them as they push into the attack and into the final third. So lots lots of similarities. And I think really the driving factor behind why the big teams are doing this. Bayern will push Davies forward still on the left, but they'll keep uh, the, the right back deeper. It was Masrawi, I think, in their opener. All, all the teams are doing this now. Barca keep Kunde back sometimes on the right side or Araujo and push Balde up high on the left side. Teams are doing this, I think, for two reasons. To get control from their defenders, to put defenders in positions to defend. This sounds very, very basic, but I, I think the reasoning is basic. They want their defenders to defend, and they want their attackers to attack. Like, if you're Manchester City, as stupid as it sounds, wouldn't you rather Bernardo Silva go forward and be in the front four, in the front five, excuse me, than Kyle Walker? Or or if you're Tottenham, wouldn't you rather Youngman Son go forward and be in the front five rather than Udogi on that left side, right? Instead of having fullbacks always push forward and be the fifth attacker and the fourth attacker, these teams want, like, their, their superstar attackers to have the freedom to do that stuff and let their defenders defend. I think last year's City was the purest example of that that we've seen maybe ever with just center back on center back on center back in that back line. But I think we're going to see more and more teams, not even the top teams now, but more and more teams go to this kind of style. Yeah, so much so that I'm really excited in 10 years when like this becomes the norm and then we do get fullbacks once again bombing down the wings and everyone's like, wow, what a yep. revelatory idea. We've yep. never seen this before. Uh, it does feel like it's going in that direction. Joe and Graham have covered 
most of the ground. The only uh, couple things I would add, and then I have a question. Uh, with Arsenal, there's a really good TIFO explainer about how their acquisitions this summer have given them more size. Uh, and in the Community Shield, uh, Joe talked about Manchester City going with four center backs. Arsenal also went with four center backs. It will be harder to do, I think, now that uh, Timber is out. Uh, Tomiyasu suspended, as Joe said. So we'll see what they do. But I think that's really interesting that they have kind of given themselves that option of put in the big guys and be more direct. And I think that speaks to the caveat that there are tactical approaches when you're Arsenal playing Luton that are not going to really work if you're Arsenal playing Manchester City. And I think they've added some pragmatism there to change up what they want to do. But at the same time, I think, yeah, Partey playing as the right back, it seems to have been met with mixed opinion by Arsenal supporters thus far this season. I think it makes sense if uh, you're Arteta and you want to give uh, Saka some more support around him and not just have him be 1v1 and get fouled. Uh, so now you're you're having Odegaard drift over, you're having Partey move centrally, and then you're having uh, Ben White or whomever else kind of slide over into being that, that right back spot. Uh, and you have more numbers around Saka to give him support to combine and, and give him more maybe effectiveness or efficiency in his attacking. So I think there's even an, an evolution of why it's moved from the left side moving centrally to the right side moving centrally for Arsenal. Um, I also think we've, we've gone over it already, but my, my original note was Arsenal, one fullback joins middle. City, one fullback joins middle. Liverpool, one fullback joins middle. Spurs, two fullbacks join middle. Is that a fair summary, basically? It, I, I think it is. City, I do, do the most different things in mm-hmm. a 90-minute game. Like yep. At times, Guardiola will be central. At times, will be wider in a back. Fo- like They shift so much. Generally, yeah, I think that mm-hmm. that's about right, Taylor. Which leads to my like question I had about this. Would you all agree that Andy Robertson is now staying home more often, or at least yeah. so? And he's struggling. He's, that he's feels struggling to with me, it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so typical that Scotland was like, "We've got so many world class <laughs> fullbacks," and the rest of the world football was like, "Yeah, we don't use those anymore." Like that. Yeah, that, that's just absolutely <laughs> classic for us. But I also feel like that that is part of why like I don't know Liverpool have had some stuttering performances in my mind because I think of how often it was so effective to have Robertson in the attack plays a ball to the back post for Trent Alexander-Arnold or vice versa Trent Alexander-Arnold plays a ball to the back post for Andy Robertson and there were just so many good combinations in there and that's removed his attacking threat in a lot of ways or at least reduced it and that to me was such a hallmark of that team maybe it's no longer efficient or as effective but it does sort of limit i think liverpool's ability to attack on both sides by keeping one of them home all right thank you very much matt for that excellent question we go now to jack hartley who's got a hypothetical for us here we go fifa made an executive decision and now every league in the world must spend the same amount how long before leagues catch up with the Premier League and which clubs or leagues grow the fastest? So, Graham, this is a pretty interesting thought exercise. I suppose if we just look at look at it from a perspective of everyone has the same amount of money as the Premier League, the same income, the same income potential from TV deals and distribution and whatnot. Who has the fundamentals in place to raise their bar to Premier League level the quickest, I suppose, is a good way to start this. Yeah, first of all, um, listeners should have seen our Slack channel last night with Taylor essentially doing a Charlie Kelly conspiracy board <laughs> conversation around this question and us having to talk him down a little bit. But by the look in his face, maybe he's still at that conspir- conspiracy well, I board. I don't think it's conspiracy. I just, I'm confused by the question, basically. Because if it's like just a thought experiment, like I, I think it gets really murky really quickly. Because if you're like, okay, everybody now has the same amount of money, are we saying because there's a salary cap or are we saying because... Matt 
magically everyone has money. But then if everyone has money, isn't it just like, well, India has the largest population. So India, because they're going to have a ton of people watching it. Like, I don't I think it's it's. Without parameters, it's just a huge question to try to undertake. Well, you can say India. You can say you can say the Indian League. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's, that's your answer. answer <laughs> I kept quiet in the Slack yesterday because I was too late to wait in, and I wasn't trying to make things more complicated. But as I sat down, this is the question I left for this morning. I like started writing something and deleting something in my notes like twelve different times. So I Dude, think same. I am just as right confused as you. Taylor. So I'm gonna let Graham talk, and then yep. I do have like something to say. But this this one was difficult for me. Yeah, I, to be clear, what I was su- suggesting was like, why don't we just make it that like there is a salary cap and everybody has to abide by that salary cap because then you, you like can have the option of teams maybe don't end up leagues don't end up enforcing that like you don't have to spend that amount you can spend underneath it and then you see how other teams have to operate. So I feel like it could have been an interesting thought experiment in that way, but you all just wanted it to be everybody has Saudi money. What happens next? I think <laughs> essentially yeah, we could just look at it as. Which yeah, which t- which leagues could rise to Premier League level in terms of uh, you know technical ability and mm. uh, and stature if they had the same access to the same amount yeah. of money as the Premier League? If we look at it that so, simply, then maybe it's an easier exercise. I, I still think the Premier League would have a would have a legacy that would mean it would it, it could coast for a while and still be the strongest league in the world. Um, I think the other big European clubs would surely benefit most immediately, like talking between one and five years. So I'm I'm thinking of transfers like Mohamed uh, Kudus going to West Ham, which, by the way, we we have to stop that transfer somehow. David Moyes can't be given Mohamed Kudus. That has to be against the law. But anyway, if you take Premier League money a, out of the equation... tackling midfielder in like two weeks. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah, he's the centre-back, getting <laughs> yeah. away crosses. Yeah, if you take Premier League money out of the equation, he he's surely going to like... A Milan or, or even like a Marseille or, or Borussia Dortmund mm. or one of these kind of big clubs. So I think there would be a pretty quick calibration there where clubs with legacy of being bed, uh, begging and, and, and good in a kind of um, past time before Premier League money just completely warped everything. I think they would surpass the Nouveau Riche again. Um, but in terms of like which league could grow the fastest, quickest. Like, aren't they only the biggest because they had the most money? See, like this is where it gets really murky for me. It's like, no, if everybody has the same amount of money, Bologna, like, Wait, yeah, so they got you the saying, name. Like, are you saying like we take it back to year zero and like see what happens? Because no, I'm I was saying taking that your as, understanding of this question does that. I'm, I'm saying that I think if you establish that like there's a salary budget that teams have to operate on, I think some of the parameters still apply. I think it is still a return to more of that norm of the big teams become or stay the big teams, but if everybody has Premier League money, then everyone spends like a Premier League team, and that's why we have West Ham buying Mohamed Kudush. We could have Bologna buying him. We could have Galatasaray buying him. We could have an Indian team buying him. I think it does end up being the historical importance of those teams. It's just confusing to me that the historical importance of those teams is so often connected to the money they had and the money they were able to generate to stay at that level. Sure, okay, so maybe if you're taking it as like a year zero question, I was more considering it as like tomorrow FIFA says everyone can spend the same money mm-hmm. and from that point, what happens? So I guess like that's when I, when I talk about legacy, I guess I'm counting um, financial advantage that they've had up until this point as legacy, which is why I say the Premier League can probably coast for, for, for a while. I don't know if the Premier League becomes the biggest league in the world if we're starting at year, year zero. I think probably MLS, if we're starting at year zero, becomes the biggest league in the world pretty quickly because of uh, of lifestyle. You hear it all the time. Players want to, to live in the States. They want they, they go on holiday to the States all the time. Shop at Publix. It's the reason that, that Messi, yeah, <laughs> shop in Publix. It's the reason that Messi, um, Publix, Publix number one customer now, is in Miami 
Miami. The lifestyle is one of MLS's biggest selling points, and in the same way that living in London is often something that makes Chelsea and Arsenal more attractive to players, I think uh, I think MLS would would have that advantage. All right, Joe, anything to add? I, I also agree that MLS would have an advantage. Uh, I also agree with Taylor that I'm struggling to comprehend this question. The more I think about it, the more confused I get. I, I, I think a lot of it comes down to, and this doesn't really factor into my answer, but I think a lot of it, if everybody can spend the same amount of money on everything, right? Salaries, transfer fees, infrastructure, then it just comes down to who's spending the money the smartest, right? Because if everyone has the same resources, then it's about the allocation of those resources. So I'm just going to take a shot at La Liga here and rule them out because their rebrand sucks, so I'm going to assume that they're not <laughs> capable of making good decisions at this point. They also kind of like botched having the two biggest teams and the two biggest players on the planet for the same period and having that have any lasting impact. We'll see if MLS has a similar challenge over the next couple of years and beyond. But really, it's, it's about who spends the money the smartest. And it seems to me that the Premier League has gotten a lot of things right. And maybe they will continue to do things the smartest. But MLS, I think, would benefit from a large infusion of cash or from everything being equal because mm. of, of the lifestyle stuff, because of the infrastructure that's already there and, and really the commitment to at times way too slow, but slow and steady progress and growth. I think that would go well. The league that I think would, would be at the biggest disadvantage when this happened, other than the premier league is Saudi Arabia because their big value proposition is, is money right now. And when that goes away and becomes equal, then suddenly we're not seeing all these yeah. players go and hang out in Saudi Arabia. So that's the one that I felt most <laughs> confident about after I made myself sick thinking through all the different parameters here. But I yeah, have, I was baffled. Yes, they've got to lower they've got to lower their bar, haven't they? They've got to go they've got to drop down to Premier League levels in this uh, thought exercise. I like that. Do they? Because there's no salary limit; they can spend whatever they want. Uh, here's here's what I would say. I went the other way, Joe. I would say that Saudi Arabia is best positioned. I my answer really? was the United States and Saudi Arabia specifically because if everybody has the same amount of money, I think Graham is correct. I think the the basic idea. I think the Premier League would stay the top. League, I think largely because like from an American perspective, that's how it's been. You have so many people who watch the Premier League and it's an English language league, basically. So I, I think it appeals in that way. It already has so much global interest that I think it would stay the top league for probably a decade. But then once you start to remove that, as everyone else has that sort of parity of money, I think it becomes about like global significance. I really do. And I think to Graham's point, I think a lot of people want to live in the United States or idealize the idea of living in the United States at, at least. And so I think the U.S. would grow in its appeal. And then I think like if we're if we're going with reasons why people would want to live in a place, Saudi Arabia is the most important country in the world if you are Muslim. And I think it would have a lot of appeal for people who can go there, see the best players in the world, can uh, like make their pilgrimage and, and live in a place where like they feel comfortable. I feel like there would be a lot of appeal there. I think there would probably be a lot of appeal in like certain Far East locations. So I, I think it would be about sort of where people think they could feel most comfortable or would end mm -hmm. up feeling most comfortable. There's also a lot of Blade Runner fans in the world, and Saudi Arabia are building that big wall mirror <laughs> building. Yeah, they I do think, have um, replicant technology. That is the we're going to get that someday, aren't we? We're going to get like replicant Lionel Messi playing in the league in 40 years. It's going to be interesting and also upsetting. Yeah, I'm surprised he's not an NFT already. Frankly, Taylor, um, <laughs> Jack, thank you very much for this question. It has certainly uh, brought some interesting responses out of us. I think, can we all agree that the Bundesliga would be worst place for this? Because if they were told they had to spend the same amount as the Premier League, they'd go, 
no, we want three euro beers. We'll we'll just we'll do a different sport. We don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> we have principles. We're too principled. I think there's that's the, a there's the Instagram comedian who um she I think she went viral where she was having coffee with her mother or with her German mother and it's her German mother just being like, Would I want sugar? No, I do not want sugar in my coffee. And I just picture that over and over again of like, no, we are not spending this money. No, we will not do that. No, this is silly. No, we will not spend that. No, like I, I'm with you, Ryan. I think it would be the hardest to get the Bundesliga on board for this one, with the exception of Bayern Munich and RB Leipzig. Actually, Apart from I- Bayern, yeah, Bayern <laughs> Munich would be like, We'll have all your money yeah. and we'll give it to everyone else for our for our signings. Maybe I'll um, also add in Serie A because if they all the all that cash is injected, I'm not sure it'd be pumped into the teams. It might uh, go somewhere else. Anyway, right. let's Hatred take- of Italy comes back. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> oh, just look at the roads, man. Anyway, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to combine Concacaf and Condobol and much more. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Good old David Ruffins got in touch. Hey, David, if CONCACAF and CONMEBOL were to merge, which federation would benefit the most? How would the US fare in World Cup qualification in this scenario? I think, Taylor, to start off, both would benefit financially, arguably, by this amalgamation, would they not? Because mm-hmm. there would be some um, some economies of scale, should we say. Yes, I would say they both would. I think CONMEBOL more so would benefit from that one. Uh, This is the question that made me go from like, I love this idea to, oh, this could be bad really quickly. Oh, I thought it was the other. I thought it was the last one. Okay. No, it's this one. I mean, that one also was confusing to me. This one more so because it's a thing that I've always thought would be a good idea and would, would make... Uh, like the both federations, because they become one stronger, you'd get a, a better regional competition, a more impactful regional competition. But I think with Commonwealth, they're getting more money. They're getting an additional home game when playing in the United States and World Cup qualifying. And I don't mean that as a shot against U.S. supporters. It's just that for resident for expats or residents living here who would get to see their their country of origin or their country, with their parents origin or whatever, like playing a meaningful World Cup qualifier, they're going to show up. So it means that those teams are getting really well-attended road games. Um, I think on top of that, they're probably getting more World Cup spots simply because if you merge those two, 
then I, I think like the total number of spots, you're more likely to get more common bowl teams qualifying than fewer common bowl teams than more CONCACAF teams. Uh, so I, I think in a lot of ways, it benefits common bowl a lot for that merger to happen from those sort of like tangible, non-tangible reasons. I think for CONCACAF, it makes qualifying much more dramatic, much less of a formality in terms of the teams that you expect to be in that final round of qualifying. Uh, I think, as I said, you get a better regional competition. You merge the Gold Cup and Copa America. You have an actual sort of competitor to the Euros. I still think it's it's a tier or two behind, but I think it, it, it gets much, much closer and generates much more income. I think will generate much more interest, especially if you're playing it in an off year uh, when you're not directly competing with the Euros. I don't know if that's something they would do, but I still think it benefits both of them, but probably Comable more so. Hmm. Joe, what do you think about this one? And how how would we even organize this? Would we have to do the Comable league, tile, league table, half go in, half go out kind of situation? Just uh, just do it with 51 teams. I don't see what the problem is here. I think there's 10 Commonwealth yeah, nations and, and 41 in CONCACAF. This feels very doable. No, I mean, in terms of the format, you would have to have some playing rounds like CONCACAF has, has done forever and then whittle it down. I love the table that Commonwealth has. I think it's by far, by far the best World Cup qualification format because, I mean, they have some logistical advantages given that there are 10 member associations and, and no other uh confederation i think has that edge but it's so good and so i would want to have everybody sort of go through some preliminary rounds and then pair it down to 10 and then you do the table or maybe you pair it down to eight to save everybody a couple of games that they played in the play-in games or i don't know how you do it right but you get it down to that table and you do home and away and i think it would be awesome now david asked in the question how the u.s would fare in this world cup qualification scenario i totally think they would qualify it's not going to be easy the level in comable is higher and the the travel and the the rigors of qualification is is brutal. It's really, really tough. But on quality, at the very least, the U.S. is good enough to qualify from Common Bowl. I think the U.S. is good enough to qualify from Common Bowl just keeping the six spots that they're going to have for the next World Cup, right? I mean, Common Bowl, six, six-tenths, was that, three-fifths? I can do math. Three-fifths of them are going to the World Cup anyway. <laughs> Even when you add in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, I think the U.S. is strong enough to be in that top six. Argentina and Brazil would qualify without breaking a sweat, basically. I think the U.S. is then on par with kind of that next batch. I think about Uruguay, Ecuador, Colombia, Peru, Chile, maybe is in that conversation. Peru, maybe, I don't know. Mexico and Canada. I think the U.S. of that group, it's towards the top, frankly, of that second tier right now. Uh, again, lots can change, and this is just an on-paper exercise. But I think the U.S. would would do mostly fine. Graham, do you agree with that? How do you see the U.S. faring um, in Bolivia or however many thousand Yeesh. feet above? <laughs> Ecuador, too. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I broadly agree with with Joe in that the US would be in that second tier group, and right now with the current crop, maybe they are towards the top of of, of that second tier. But if you project it forward ten years, I don't think there's any guarantee that the US could slip to the bottom of that second tier, if that makes any sense. And that's where you're getting closer to the the line of qualification. So I actually look at it kind of similar in a soccer sense with this scenario. Um, quite similar to the Brendan Aronson discussion we had on the Patreon yesterday, where you can look at CONCACAF qualification that the US obviously goes through now and, and, and ask, does that keep the US at a high level? Does it keep them at, at World Cups? And the answer to that is yes. But w- would another path through CONCACAF qualification or combined qualification, which would be more challenging, would that help the US 
push push that team towards becoming a, a truly elite national team? I also think the answer to that is yes, but the US might miss out on one or two World Cups this <laughs> yeah. way. And the, ho- the hope is that once you get 20 years down the line, then that doesn't happen because obviously the, the potential, the ceiling for US soccer is higher than a lot of the common ball nations. But yeah, there might be some short-term pain yeah. keep in mind the u.s didn't qualify for the 2018 world cup through Concacaf, so i don't think we can can, can completely discount them missing out through combo i think combo is getting what like six automatic spots yep. for the 2026 yep. so yeah. I, I, I like i think that probably helps if you add those together uh, i i would just add from a like geopolitical historical standpoint uh the U.S. has done a lot to generate hate in Central America and the Caribbean. Uh, the same goes for South America. I think it's going to be tough to get points on the road, not just because of elevation, not just because of the quality. Like going to Venezuela, I don't think we're getting a lot of uh, cheering from the Venezuelan home supporters in that one. I, I feel like it's going to be rough on the road for the United States uh, if this merge- merger were to occur. And then, like I said, the the path to qualifying so often in CONCACAF has been draw and don't get beaten like uh, away and then win at home but if now those home games become even more contested because it's going to be 60 percent argentina fans 70 percent brazil brazil fans 60 percent chile fans like it gets the qualifying gets harder from that atmospheric pressure standpoint i think the team probably gets better and i think it also does allow the u.s to be a more reactive team whereas so often they have to pick apart compact defenses and and struggle with that i think against brazil argentina some of those other south american teams they're going to be the team that's sitting and countering and i think that benefits the u.s in some ways so it could be good it could be bad i guess what i'm advocating for is they like if this occurs a global apology tour of like hey so the monroe doctorate doctrine <laughs> roosevelt corollary our bad for real Colombia, yeah. sorry we made Panama exist. Panama, we're happy you existed, but like also our bad again. Like I think it's just got to be a lot of apologizing. I think if yeah. we want to be uh, able to have a point on the road, this is Gio Reyna's punishment. He has to <laughs> yeah. make those personal apologies to the crowds. For the record, Taylor, I don't think England has ever made those apologies in its travels, um, and it's had some similar issues. So uh, yeah, maybe, you're not maybe. qualifying in in, uh, in Argentina either. I don't think that would go well for you, my friend. Depends where it was held that game. I'm not going to get into that one, uh, but I, I do find was it wild. Falkland Island Joke? Stadium. I was, Falkland I was trying, Stadium. I was thinking of it. I was thinking of it, Graham. It didn't come out of my mouth. It came out of yours. Um, imagine a wild. Uh, tr- oh, and if know, it helps, Ryan, uh, everyone also hates England. So don't worry about it. it. It's fine. It's fine. Oh, I know. I know. We're, we're on an island together, Tay Tay. Hey! Such a relationship. <laughs> Indeed. I just pictured that international break though, Taylor, where on the weekend you're at American Art, then on the Tuesday you're in like a, uh, <laughs> you know, Be careful. On, a tr- on a field with a, with a high school track around it. I was going to say, which MLS team are you going to make angry here? <laughs> Wild times. All right. Thank you very much, David, for that question. We got one more today from Mark Mascolino. This one's interesting, and I think Graham might have things to say about this. I hope he does. Uh, Mark says he was at a recent uh, Cincinnati Chivas League's Cup match and couldn't help but notice that Chivas forward Yel Padilla wears number 207 on his shirt. Three digits! I can't recall a triple-digit number in any of the other traditional sports teams. What's the deal with that, says Mark? Um, Graham, I'm I'm angry just at the question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm 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 not a fan. Um so 
visually this looks dreadful where like the number is going round the the body <laughs> um so yeah it looks terrible but i think this seems to be in my research i found this seems to be something that's unique to liga mekis so basically liga mekis forces every club to give a permanent squad number to every player on their books and when i say every player I mean every player, including youth players. So U20, U17, players all the way down to U13 level are given a squad number. Um, the numbers obviously reset every season, so it's not like you're stuck with that number forever. It's not like a social security number for football for Liga Mekis. You can be number 257 as an 18-year-old and then, you know, um, number seven a couple years from then. But if you're promoted within a season... You could be a player like Padilla who ends up in the first team with a youth team number. So Padilla, as far as I could see, is still registered as a, a Chivas U23 player. So that explains why he has number 207. Yeah, it, it looks pretty terrible. But also, I think fans are capable of understanding that each youth team at a club has a standard set of numbers. Like, I don't understand what the purpose of it is. Like, nobody watched Kobe Menu from my United's under-18 team and over the summer or last season and thought he's wearing number six but that's not Paul Pogba like fans are able to, under to understand that like just because you're wearing the same number it's a different player so yeah let's let's change that for Liga I love Americas. Graham I love how you got to the end there like fans have eyes so this is not a necessary thing now I really enjoyed that <laughs> I I'm I'm more in favor of it uh I like it uh I think it makes scouting a it lot easier it looks so bad Taylor it looks so bad the shirts look so bad and look. that's like the ultimate crime in soccer you can't make the shirts oh. look bad I'll accept anything Graham, you have just opened the door. I am buying you the Manchester United away kit, and I'm getting you number 207. Uh, <laughs> and that's how we're going to do that. Uh, I like it. I like for a scouting and player ID uh, for, for those purposes. I think it makes a lot of sense if you have a player playing for Manchester United's U15s and then suddenly he's with the U18s. I like the idea of being able to track that progress and, and see that development. I think it also makes... A youth that player has a name you can do that with. Like, there's another way you can track them just by what their name is. Okay, can you see the <laughs> can you see the name when you're on the broadcast? No, you can see the number unless it's Newcastle, and then you can't see either. Uh, but but I think I, I like it from a standpoint of like if if number two hundred seven comes on, you automatically know that is a reserved or that's an academy kid who's now getting their senior team debut, and I think it streamlines that process for call ups as well. So I, I kind of like it, even if it does look bad. I also have been uh, two tournaments and two competitions where this was in effect and, and it was very jarring and sort of confusing and a little bit silly. So I, I will concede that it does look odd to have those types of numbers on there, but I kind of like it from a streamlining process. And then also I want it to extend to the international level. I feel like national teams should have to have players keeping the same number throughout, mostly just so that when we're doing our World Cup uh, uh, like preview prep I don't have to be like wait is that the same number two as last time or is it a different player wearing number two this time I like the idea of just knowing who the player is based on the number I like that uh, Taylor has a strong opinion about this Graham has a strong opinion about this Ryan you'll be pleased to know I do not care one that way or the other although I do appreciate how <laughs> succinctly Graham answered the question and I'm also in favor uh, Mark ends his question with what's the deal with that Ryan, I think that could become your catchphrase right as you ask Ooh. a question. Like you end with, what's the deal with that? I think that would be fun. <laughs> and out of all this, that's the thing I feel most strongly about. Okay, well, I'm glad you had that contribution, Joe. I'll say I disagree with Taylor's opinion. I agree with Graham's. But you are a monster for not having an opinion on this, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, how yeah, does that's it reasonable. I think everybody, everybody should just do the Jossie Zardes, like, hair <laughs> 
uh, die method where there's just one strip down the middle and that's how all their grandmas tell who they are, which is why Jossie Zardes did that in the first place. And everyone should just have a different hex code what? for their, for their so color like, strip. I think that's what it should be in terms of identification. Wow. Like a different pattern on every and no, no, just hair. slightly different color. Like a like, like you're six seven five B six four, and I'm something else. Okay. Wow. This is this is all getting very extreme. authoritarian. All of a sudden, I'm not sure about this one. But would, would Paul Pogba wearing number two hundred seven with his hair make Graham Sunis just explode? Like would that would that be the end of him? Would that be too much for him to process at once? Well, going on the evidence that we have of Paul Pogba just existing <laughs> making Graham Sunis explode, I would say yes. This um yeah, I, I don't I can see. The the rationale behind this from Liga Mekis, uh, but I don't love it. The, the, it reminds me of the biggest um, squad numbering crime that I can recall, Graham. I don't know if you remember when Ivan Zamorano was at Inter Milan yeah. in the 90s. So he had the number nine shirt. Then a fella called Ronaldo showed up. And instead of, uh, well, he gave, uh, he was given the number nine shirt, was Ronaldo, of course, because he's Ronaldo. And then um, Zamorano was wearing one plus eight. Yep. So I remember being in the sports so store sad. in my local mall and there was a plus symbol, a one plus eight. He was ostensibly 18, but there was a plus there. I hated it so much. Louis van Gaal yeah, I mean, made it, it, James Wilson do, do that. He made him wear, like, switch from like 27 to 39 because at least there's a nine in there and you already feel like a striker if you're wearing <laughs> a nine on your back, regardless of if it's 39. Yeah, and, uh, Another Man United example, didn't Danny Welbeck do that in, at Man United? He was 19 because he could never be number nine. And so he was like, I'll take, I'll take 19. It's, it's a little bit that's, sad. That's, it's sadder when you put a little plus and you have to, yeah, you force people to do a maths equation. It's not a little bit sad. Squad number. <laughs> I would argue it's a lot bit sad. Uh, well, the Premier League only allows numbers up to 99. That is codified. And I believe other leagues have a similar prospect. So we, we won't be getting uh, number 687. It's bad news for Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> They might have to start using pluses, otherwise they wouldn't have a choice. We will see. Uh, but uh, for now, I believe we have listener questioned. We have ended on bad news for Chelsea. I don't know what to make of that, but Graham Ruthen, thank you very much for your wonderful listener questioning. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, my good man. Happy Sylvia to you, my friend. Joe Lowry, sorry I called you a monster. I love you, really. Ah, love you too, Ryan. Listener, we love you the mostest. Thank you for joining us on this one. We'll be back with the big thing on your feed on Friday. But for now, bye. Bye.